pushback, bellwethers, and deficits. We'll decode. Welcome. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Glad you're here. We are going to be busy, but let's get right to it. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist. Welcome. It's great to be here. Dave Spano, president and CEO, Annex Wealth Management. Yes, thank you, Danny. And lots to talk about. And let's start with the big number, the S&P 500 closing over 5,000. And the Dow Jones coming up on 40,000, just short of that at 39,000. And I have to remember when Professor Siegel, the Wharton professor, said during the middle of the pandemic, I believe it was in the first quarter of 2020, when the Dow Jones got to about 18,000, he made this bold prediction Mm -hmm. that it would be above 40,000 in five years. And look at where we are, Brian. I know it's pretty incredible as far as, you know, if you think about just all the fear that was out there in the first quarter of 2020 with the pandemic, for somebody to come out and say, we'll get through this is kind of basically what he was saying is that, you know, he's famous for the idea of stocks for the long run. And really five years in the grand scheme of things isn't that long. But when you were going through the pandemic, that probably felt like an eternity. And then the distance to go from around 19,000 up to close to 40,000, nearly doubling. And that doesn't even include dividends. Right. Like if you think about the Dow, those companies oftentimes kick off pretty good dividends. You reinvest those dividends, take advantage of the power of compounding. You could have done quite a bit better. And I will tell you, when I started this business in the 1980s, I think the Dow was around 4,000, 3,000. So it's become a long (laughs) ways uh, in my career, but it's certainly brings to the top of mind FOMO or the fear of missing out when people see yeah. these big numbers. Oh, it does. Yeah. And really, when I talk to people in the media, they always tend to call when you're around these round numbers because they say that they're psychologically important. And they are. You know, People take notice because you suddenly turn on CNBC, Fox Business News, Bloomberg, whatever it is, or even on the nightly news, they will talk about when you hit these certain milestones. Interestingly, we seem to hit these milestones much more frequently nowadays. And keep in mind, it used to be that these new highs used to be old hat in the sense that if you're at a new high, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's only down from here. Right. And you think about it, that this is not a two cocktail idea to think about Dow 50,000, because that's really only about 20% from here. As you said, we can get to those bigger numbers quicker. So the question remains, why is this happening? And really, there's two things that are happening right now that's just top of everyone's mind. Number one is what the Federal Reserve is doing. And number two, their earnings report Mm -hmm. that we're receiving. Yeah. In terms of what the Fed is doing, they have given some of that pushback against the idea that they need to cut soon and cut all often. Uh, And really, I think the key thing, though, was the messaging around why they can wait. Because the economic numbers have been so much better than expected, they think that there's little risk to waiting a little bit longer just to make sure inflation is indeed coming down. And then it gets to your second point about the earnings numbers. That's some of the evidence that the economic numbers have been improving. We did have an earnings recession last year where you had two consecutive quarters in a row of declines in earnings per share. But boy, that bounce back was pretty strong. So let's dig deep on both of those topics. We started the show with pushbacks. And that really started last Sunday night when Chairman Powell was on 60 Minutes. Yeah, that was an interesting interview. And uh, really, he tried to just restate everything that he's already said before. He didn't really want to break new ground in terms of saying what they might do. It was just to reiterate that they feel like they can afford to wait a little bit longer to cut 
they want to make sure that they have enough evidence and that the public has enough confidence in them that they have indeed tamed inflation. So when I look at some of the numbers as far as, let's say, on a three-month and six-month basis, the run rate for inflation, I think that the Fed has basically gotten back towards their target. We are sustainably there. We don't necessarily have to worry about another wave of inflation coming. And while the Fed might believe that too, because of how strong the economic numbers have been, they feel like, let's just be on the safe side and wait just a little bit longer. And one of the reasons why people don't feel so great about the economy right now, despite that their 401k plans are going up and they see these big numbers, is because of inflation, because the costs have gone up. Over the last three years, they're up about 20%. Everything from your housing costs to fueling your car have gone up, grocery stores. And that's the reason why people are a bit dour on it. You look at what the Fed is saying. They were late to the game for hiking rates. Yep, that's right. They were. And I appreciated that he admitted that. Uh, I mean, to me, that actually is kind of a testimony to his character that he will admit when they made a mistake. And they don't want to compound the mistake by making another mistake on the other side of it. Right. So they were late to hiking. They don't want to be too late for cutting, but they feel like there's little risk of that. So they don't want to be too soon for cutting. And the reason why he says that he's comfortable is because of the fact that inflation is a bit stickier than they thought it would be. And that really comes from wage inflation. It does, which feeds into the services, which is a much bigger part of the inflation basket. Used to be that goods price inflation was a bigger part of what people purchased, but now it's really dominated by services. And there still is that lingering worry about whether or not wage inflation is going to feed into the service sector price inflation. So far, so good, though. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist, Dave Spano, our president and CEO. That's our Week in Review, always available on demand at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts, also in the Axiom newsletter. If you're not getting that, sign up for it. It's free. Still to come, IRS red flags plus Ask Annex. Also look at the downsides of supporting adult children. It's Super Bowl weekend. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Thanks for listening. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. Welcome back on the air, on the stream, on the podcast. Hey, want to get a webinar on your radar? Financial planning through 2024 volatility, as we think it's going to be here, happens Wednesday, February 14th, 1 o'clock Eastern, noon Central. And now we know many of you listen on the stream across the country and around the world, according to our analytics. In fact, Next to the United States, our number two and number three countries are Spain and France. Hopefully, those are clients living the good life. We're glad you're here. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, is here. Dave Spano is our president and CEO. Danny, you started the show talking about bellwethers, and we're right in the middle of earnings season, and it's been a good one. Three quarters of the companies have reported better than expected, and here we go talking about some of the big-name stocks. That's right. Yeah, earnings expectations have been exceeded, and we're coming in at a run rate of around 2.9% earnings growth year-on-year compared to an expectation of closer to 1.5%. Two of the things from a more kind of macroeconomic perspective that I like watching are the shipping companies and then also big heavy equipment companies. So Caterpillar reported, and I found that to be somewhat encouraging because they're getting a lot more new orders coming in. Used to be that as went China, so went Caterpillar, basically. And that seems to no longer be the case so much. 
China is still having a few struggles, but Caterpillar is seeing more domestic demand for their heavy equipment. And then on the shipping side, you had the big shipping company, Maersk. They've been affected by the conflict in the Middle East, especially the Red Sea. They cut their dividend. That's always painful to see, obviously. And the reason why they had to do that is they're having to reroute. That's right, exactly. So one third of their ships would go through the Red Sea, but now they actually have to go around the Horn of Africa. That's a much longer route, and they can charge a premium for that, almost like sort of a risk premium for the shipping, but it is also more costly for them. And they're also warning that during COVID, there was such a buildup of excess ships and containers that when we do eventually get through that uh, Middle East conflict, that they're afraid that really shipping costs are just going to come down pretty dramatically. Okay, Professor, this is a math quiz. So the expectation for earnings of the S&P 500 is about 235. So we're looking at the S&P 500 right around 5,000. So north of 20, I guess, is the math on that one, right? It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, And actually, that's a great round number. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the importance of round numbers. And I think that around 20 for a multiple on earnings is an important one. Uh, It's not at what we would call nosebleed levels, but it is one where we do feel like it is prudent to be a little bit more cautious. So valuations, these market multiples, they're horrible market timing tools, but they do tend to give you some information when they get to some extremes. And so we're going to have to monitor pretty closely as far as how much faster do prices run up relative to those earnings expectations. So real quickly, I want to talk about deficits and the CPI report that came out this week. Yeah, so with the deficits, the Congressional Budget Office came out and they basically lowered their projections for future deficits to the tune of about $1.7 trillion. Now, you do spread that over 10 years. This government gridlock that we have had, it's actually somewhat frozen spending at current rates. Revenues have grown faster. So that's somewhat encouraging news. We also got CPI numbers as far as the seasonal adjustment numbers. Those were changed. And thankfully, it was a big nothing burger in terms of people were worried about, are we going to see what we had last year, where suddenly inflation was worse than originally reported? This time, it came in spot on, basically, with what it originally was. The two parts of the report that jumped out at me, number one was renter's equivalent rates were still up, yep. so rent costs were going up, number one, and number two is there's still pressure on wages. Dave Swano is our president and CEO, Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist. Hey, the IRS is promising a very active audit season. Who are they looking for? How can you eliminate red flags? We're going to talk to a couple of members of our financial planning team. They're keeping an eye on that, and that's coming up next after a break. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? The Treasury Department has directed the IRS, which has received an infusion of billions of dollars earmarked for enforcement, to avoid increased scrutiny on small businesses and households below $400,000 in income. Instead, focusing on large corporation, high income, and high net worth individuals and complex pass-through entities. But what does that mean? Or better yet, what's likely to raise a red flag? Joining me, Eric Strom, financial planning manager, CFP, and an EA enrolled agent with the IRS. Hello, Eric. Hello, Danny. Jenny Jesse is here, too. She's a financial planning specialist, CFP, and also an EA enrolled agent with the IRS. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Danny. The IRS has indicated that it will increase attention on high net worth individual taxpayers, especially those with income exceeding a million dollars and more than $250,000 in recognized tax debt. 
Aren't those individuals already targets? Yes, of course, because they are owing that money for tax debt. However, high-income individuals, they're actually at historically low audit rates, and the IRS wants to reverse that. And they want to make headlines, they want to put up some big numbers, so they actually identified 1,600 high-net-worth, high-income individuals who met that criteria, and in a matter of months, they recovered almost half a billion dollars. And this really sends a message, right? It really sets a tone. One issue that the IRS is paying closer attention to is large deductions or tax credits that look outsized compared to a taxpayer's income. Cracking down on unreported income is also high on the agency's list. Now, I'm not an EA, but that would seem kind of obvious. Right. The IRS compares the deductions taken on your tax return to the average deductions claimed by taxpayers with a similar income. These can include things like state and local taxes paid, medical expenses, and charitable donations, to name just a few. Deductions that exceed that average may be subject to greater scrutiny to ensure the taxpayer is truly eligible for those deductions that will reduce the amount of tax they pay. The same goes for tax credits. With increased audit rates, it's important now more than ever to have proper documentation to support credits and deductions. Regarding that unreported income, most of a taxpayer's income is automatically reported to the IRS via tax forms, such as a W-2 from your employer or a 1099 from your financial institution. So if the IRS notices a discrepancy between what's reported on your tax return and the information they received from these tax forms, that can raise a red flag. How about digital assets? I mean, digital assets in general, kind of the wild west, is that the same thing with tax law? Yeah, so digital assets are newer to the scene, and keeping up with the rules surrounding them for tax purposes is important to help avoid an audit. Transactions involving a digital asset are generally required to be reported on a tax return, such as a gain on the sale of the asset. And there's even a checkbox at the very top of the tax return asking if you've had any transactions with digital assets during the year, showing that this is something that the IRS is really paying close attention to. You can't just say, I don't recall. No, that's not an answer. We were with Eric Strom, financial planning manager and a CFP and an EA enrolled agent with the IRS. Same thing with Jenny Jesse, financial planning specialist, CFP and an EA. Who's most vulnerable to full audits? I would be concerned if you, for one, own a closely held business, any kind really, but especially if you're a member of a partnership, particularly large or complex partnerships, they've been specifically identified as a target. But really, if you're using any business planning strategy that's trying to avoid paying self-employment tax, they have come out and said that's a target. So you are more vulnerable. Also, if your income is over, say, a million dollars or even 400000 a year, you are more of a target as well. Is it because there's more complexity that means there's more ways that you can try to deduct? Yes, exactly that. And also, I think that it's a little bit more worth it to put in all the man and woman power to really audit that because there's just more unpaid tax there with the higher income and the higher complexity. Let's take the man and woman out of it. Are they starting to use AI too? Yeah, so artificial intelligence will help the IRS better detect fraud and comb through information specifically to audit those large partnership tax returns that can be very complex. And AI will also improve tax return selection to avoid burdening taxpayers with needless no change audits. That's where a tax return is selected for audit, but ultimately no change is made at the conclusion of the audit. So reducing the occurrence of these will save time and stress for both taxpayers and the IRS. Is this true? The IRS has indicated they're planning more cross-division collaboration, which means that if an individual taxpayer gets audited, may reasonably expect to have their business, their trust, their estate, their gift, and foundation of nonprofits open for scrutiny as well? 
Yes, I have heard some continuing education providers and other experts saying that the IRS might struggle to hire enough talented people to do that. However, they've specifically come out and said, we're going to find that weak link in the chain. But then once they find that, we're going to look at every link in that chain, right? And have them all scrutinized. So I do think it's more important than ever to be very thoughtful and intentional about this, but also think that they're getting very ambitious and it's really going to say, hey, are they going to be able to execute on this or not? Eric, what's the moral of this story? Stay above board. Use strategies that are not overly aggressive. There are definitely aggressive strategies out there still being used. Have very good documentation and just be thoughtful and intentional when you're using tax strategies to ensure that you are not wealth shifting or doing other, uh, you know, using tax shelters or other very aggressive strategies because I think we might start to see more and more scrutiny in those areas. Eric Strom, financial planning manager, CFP, and an EA, enrolled agent with the IRS. Thank you. Thanks. Jenny Jesse, financial planning specialist, CFP, also an EA, enrolled agent with the IRS. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Saturday, February 10th, Super Bowl weekend. Bottom of the hour. Let's get caught up. And for that, we go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. We're back. Let's do Ask Annex. You got a question? You head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. And if we can help, just click that Get Started button for investment and retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning as a fee-only fiduciary. Matt Morrissey is investment team manager, also a CFP. He is on the show. Hey. Hey, Danny. And we got Fred Coleman, CFP and a wealth manager. Hello to you. Hey, Danny. Two-parter here. Actually, it's two different questions. I'm taking a new job that has a 403B instead of a 401K. What do I need to know or ask? And the second one, similar, is I took a new job but really liked everything about my old 401K provider. Is that reason enough to keep it where it's at? Let's talk about that 403B first. When it comes to the 403B and the 401K, they're mostly the same. The difference is really just the name in the IRS tax code, code 401K versus code 403B. Now, 403Bs are used for nonprofit organizations. The tax advantages between the two are the same. 403Bs do sometimes have limited investment options, and then 401Ks have a little bit more creditor protection, so they're under ERISA. Most people say you can think of them as the same thing. There are some slight differences, but nothing that stands out in a major way. How about this next one? Person's got the new job, doesn't dig the new 401K, likes the old one. Can they stay there? You can't stay there. I'm a big proponent of always evaluating all of your options. It doesn't hurt to evaluate options. The two things that you look at anytime you're choosing between investments or uh, investment companies is what you're paying and what you're getting for what you're paying. Usually the 401K is going to provide those limited investment options, and you're not going to get much as far as the tax planning, Social Security, retirement planning, all those types of things. If you don't need those things, then standing with the 401K company could be a good option because it's going to be lower cost, but it doesn't hurt to look at other options. Yeah, what I'd be curious about is what's special about the old 401K. Is it something you're just used to to having? You really like the website? You're just habitual about? You know, from an investment point of view, Fred, as you're saying, they're going to be be very limited in terms of what's there, 10, 15, 20 different investment options. Most of those investment options are going to be available outside of that 401k as well too. Uh, most mutual funds are going to have different share classes. So if you had a certain mutual fund that you really liked in there, they might have had a retirement share class in there that's specific to 401ks, but you could find another share class of the exact same mutual fund outside. Um, that's not always the case. There are some that are 
built specifically for that. There are some special share types that are only built for that as well too, but likely you'd be able to find something similar. I would take a look at that. You also lose the ability by staying in there to have it actively managed as well too. So if you want help with those investments, like you said, you can look at the planning side of things, right? And if you don't want that, you could leave it there. But if you want somebody to manage it for you and have their eyes on it all the time, I would look to move it out. But again, I potentially could, you could stay there as well too, if they'll allow you to, because sometimes they might kick you out and say, Hey, you know, you're a burden in our system. We only want active employees to be there. So you can't stay after a certain time period. And sometimes they do force you out if you're below a certain dollar amount of two, where you might get a letter that says, Hey, this is going to be liquidating at X dates if you don't do something prior to that too. But ultimately for my side, I'd be curious what was special about the old 401k. And you probably could match a lot of the benefits that you liked outside. I never want the, you're a burden on the system. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's coming. Next up on Ask Annex, the I-bond rate is 5.27% for the next six months. Sounds good. What are the downsides I should consider? From my standpoint, there are a fair amount of restrictions that are on I-bond. So if you're not already in, which is how I'm taking this question, is that you're looking to maybe add money to it. Five and a quarter percent or 5.27% is pretty good over the next six months. Can get similar rates to that in a money market. Difference is the money market, their rate could change at any point in time, um, especially if rates you know, look like they might be getting lower. You know, that's going to move faster down than the, the I-bond rate is. But from an I-bond, just from a standpoint is, and I'm sure there's more restrictions around this, but generally it's a 30-year maturity. You do have a one-year minimum holding period that you can't take money out, so you lose a lot of flexibility in that first year. And if you take out money within the first five years, you lose three months worth of interest. So if rates go from 5.27 to all of a sudden they're down to four and maybe they're down to three and you want to take it out, well, you're going to lose some of that interest that you received during that time period if you take it out within those first five years. Other ways that you can use the same money, depending on what your end goal for it is, like I said, a money market will give you something similar right now. You can use treasuries or CDs to lock in rates, probably a little bit underneath 5% for shorter term loans. We do have an inverted yield curve right now, so you're not getting a benefit today of going out any longer than that. But you are also running the risk that, hey, if you have a one-year treasury or a year from now in the I-bond, that rates are going to be lower and you're not going to be able to match what you thought you're going to get. So that's a risk there as well, too. But, you know, I would look at this in the you know sake of the context of what is your end goal for this money and how does it fit into your overall portfolio? Yeah. And I always look at what's the opportunity cost. I'm always looking at not only comparing that to cash options, but also comparing that to stocks, comparing that to bonds. If this is long term money, even though it may be a smaller portion, usually putting that in stocks is going to be much more beneficial for you in the long run if you're okay with a little volatility. And the bond market is doing great as well right now. So looking at some higher yield bonds, that could also be an option. Fred Coleman, CFP and a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Matt Morrissey, investment team manager, also a CFP. Thanks. My pleasure. That's Ask Annex. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. Amy Bremer is a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. You know, we've covered some interesting topics, my friend, but today's a little bit touchy, maybe. It's helping support adult children. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. All right. We're going to start with some stats about empty nesters. 40% are helping support adult kids. The average monthly expenditure, $254. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, and that's just the average. Some people are spending a lot more. You know, there's this idea that once the kids are out of the house, that your empty nesters are off the payroll, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. According to our source data, the top expenses that parents help with are first cell phone, (laughs) then rent, then groceries, and lastly, student loan debt is the fourth on that list. We're also finding that millennials are living with their parents longer 
to help save money. One, rents have just skyrocketed. Rent's insane. And it's really difficult for these younger generations to get on the ownership ladder when buying a home. A separate study also found that 58% of adults could not afford their current lifestyle without their parental help. It's shocking. It's over half. Well, it depends on what kind of lifestyle they want. Ah, touche, touche. But getting ahead of myself. That's my the boomer in me. <laughs> and here's where we get into the uncomfortable spot. And this is how to stop financially supporting adult children. Number one, is it important? It is important, but it's also really difficult because this support is coming from a place of love. No parent doesn't love their children enough to throw them a 20 here or there. But problem is, is you're building these bad habits for the children that they become dependent on this money. And maybe that lifestyle creep does creep in. More importantly, from my perspective, from my career, in my my chosen profession as a certified financial planner is how is that money outflow to your children affecting your retirement? Is your financial house in order first? Is your retirement fully funded? Do you have any student loan debts or car payments that you need to take care of first? See, Amy is not a big meanie. There is that meat and potatoes reason. You are affecting your own retirement. What about loans to adult children? Is it okay if there's at least enforceable terms in place? We did it with one of our sons, right? He got out of college, wanted to go to a tech school. He's going to be a police officer. Needed that. We figured out a way to do that. And as soon as he started earning, and he started earning right away, we had a repayment plan. I'm glad it worked for you because a lot of folks, it doesn't. The challenge that I have with that is, is it enforceable? And you could always sign a promissory note, even if it's on a Word document, you know, I promise to pay mom and dad back, yada, 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 love kid. It's not enforceable, really, because it's kind of a handshake agreement. So, and then the other topic is, do you charge interest? If you don't charge interest, and if the IRS finds out, they're going to go back and charge this thing called imputed interest, which is the implied interest that you should have charged but if you do where they find it, you could be in big trouble. Adult children sometimes move in with parents. You, you mentioned that, hopefully temporarily. Should there be a rent agreement in place? And I'll see this with some of my friends. Their kids are living at home. And I do, I ask, are, are they paying rent? Because I think the average person who lives in the house is running up expenses. I mean, there's, there's food, there's utilities, there's all sorts of things. Yeah, a rental agreement is a good idea. There was this story in the news a few months back about this guy who was 40 some odd years old that had to get evicted from his parents' house. They literally took him to court because he would not leave. So it's always good to have a temporary place to land if something bad happens, like maybe they're in between leases or they're trying to move out of state. But it's always good to have something formalized, an end date. So that way mom and dad know when it's ending and then the kid knows what the expectations are for the future. You mentioned cell phones earlier. I've got a Venmo account, and for some reason, people share or what they're spending money on or what they're getting money for. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, but but you know, I see it all the time. It's going to be like you know, cell phone, and maybe it's the family plan, and they're paying them back. But it's things like that. Yeah, in fact, at the Bremer House, we have that exact same situation. With we have a family plan with my father-in-law and my stepson, and we get payments from. Jake, my stepson, (laughs) dad is a little bit harder to collect money from, but you know what you just do for your folks. But it's honestly, it's less expensive for both of them if we collaborate and put all of our plans on one family plan, and then we just have to pay collector. But I think the biggest thing is, is that if you're laying out this money each month and it's significant money, you are affecting your own retirement plan. And that would really get our attention as financial planners. Yes. And in my practice with Annex as a certified financial planner, there are some families that I work with where they spend too much money on their children. And we've addressed that. And But it's really hard to cut that cord. 
again, this help comes from a place of love. You don't want your children to fail, but you also don't want to pull that rug out from underneath them so quickly that they have a big catastrophic fall. It's an issue that we need to identify and course correct for a successful retirement for mom and dad. It's hard, but Amy has outlined the case to at least consider taking some necessary steps. Amy Bremer, Wealth Manager, CFP, Annex Wealth Management. Good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure, Danny. We're back. You know, there's many ways to access Annex Wealth Management. On the air, on the stream, on the podcast. Another reminder of an important webinar that's coming up. It's Financial Planning Through 2024 Volatility. Happens on Wednesday, February 14th, 1 o'clock Eastern, noon Central. All the details at AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Events tab. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our Chief Economist in the studio. Dave Spanos, our President and CEO. It is Super Bowl weekend and we are a wealth management show. So I thought perhaps we'd bring up some ideas that revolve around dollars spent. And think about this Number one, what do you think, Brian, is the average price of a Super Bowl ticket? Boy, can you buy it directly at the stadium, or do you have to buy it in the aftermarket? Well, if you in an alley from a guy with a trench coat is probably the best place to get it. That's right. Yeah. So probably what is it around ten grand? Yeah, or more something than ten thousand. Like ten thousand seven hundred and fifty-eight dollars for sure. One point one billion dollars is the economic impact to the Las Vegas economy. Here's one that's not directly dollar related. But you know what a PJ is, right? A private oh, yeah. jet. How many do you think are going to fly into Las Vegas this oh, weekend? There's got to be like a thousand or it's, so. It's you. You are. You checked the answer key already. It's actually <laughs> a thousand. Uh, no question about that. Seven million dollars, Danny, for the average cost of a thirty-second commercial. And Fox's revenue from this: six hundred million dollars. That's a good day. That is a really good day. It's really probably the last big American get-together. And plus, you got the Taylor Swift factor, which is bringing in all these new fans. You could not have written this better for the NFL. Yeah, they, they love it. And, of course, you talk about making bets. There's these things called prop bets. Of course, Taylor Swift is one of the prop bets. There's 350 different prop bets. And what, what does that mean? You know, who's the first player to score a touchdown, for example? What is the length of the national anthem? What is the coin toss going to be, heads or tails and for example what is the color of the Gatorade uh, that's going to get celebrated so uh, there's lots of stuff that's going on uh, related to the Super Bowl but let me switch gears in in let me switch gears in the interest of full disclosure right and transparency Mm -hmm. and you and I worked on a case this week that was all about fee transparency it really was yeah investors need to know what they own and why they own it and also how much are you paying to get it Uh, oftentimes you know clients will come in with really a wider range of different investment types sometimes there are annuities mutual funds exchange traded funds individual securities each one has their own fees associated with them and so what we've really tried to do is work through and really bring to light what those fees are how much are you really paying to get the those different investment exposure in our annex private client group we worked on a case this week that it was all about how much it costs it was and you know I do have to say that uh, our clients recognize that sometimes you get what you pay for right so you can pay fees and maybe you get a better experience 
associated with it, but right. you do need that transparency. And so what we were able to do is actually construct individual securities capabilities for a client as far as individual stocks and bonds instead of using exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. You know, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, mutual funds, they have operating expenses. They have management fees, distribution fees. Those are all taken from that pool of assets that they manage. And oftentimes people kind of fail to look at the details about what are you actually paying for? How much are those portfolio managers making? What are they paying the people who are distributing that, that is selling those products to you? And we got a report this past week of terminations from other firms. And guess what the number one reason was? It is because there wasn't fee transparency. So they went to the advisor, air quotes, and they sold them an insurance product or an annuity that they didn't know how much they were paying. Yeah, we don't want to be, you know, penny wise and pound foolish is the old saying. Sometimes you do get what you pay for, but you need to know what you're paying in order to understand what are you paying for. Uh, is it that you are doing transaction charges, uh, fees for going in, fees for getting out, ongoing operating expense fees? These are all things that can add up and really serve as a significant drag, or I think sometimes you've called them frictions in the uh, as far as achieving that long-term financial plan. How about if people aren't getting the or feeling that full value, right, from everything that a, an advisor would bring? I mean, you look at what we do with the investment and the retirement planning and the tax planning and estate planning, that's value. And the fact that some advisors cannot address these complex needs or they don't have the talent on their team is another main reason why we get folks coming to us because of the depth of the talent on the team. Maybe your advisor, if you're not working with Annex Wealth Management, is doing the best they can, but they just aren't staffed up. They just don't have the bench. And you need to have a personalized approach. And as Brian just talked about, a personalized portfolio. Those two pieces, Danny, are really important. Have a personalized financial plan, match that with a personalized portfolio with a talented team. Sounds like a Super Bowl win. Let's talk a little bit more about the three levels of Annex Wealth Management. And Dave, we can start with Annex Ignite, which is a great place to start. And this would be somebody out of college, maybe in their late 20s, that wants to get aimed in the right direction. Brian, then we've got Annex Comprehensive Wealth. And those are people probably, at least if they're on the jet, they can feel that they're maybe the beginning the descent right into <laughs> retirement it's interesting we've had more people who are getting into the comprehensive wealth area earlier True recognizing not. the value of starting early and so plan early and plan often so it's not just about are you approaching retirement but even for those who are just entering the careers and then annex private client complex needs high net worth we we're just kind of talking about that We'll meet you where you're at, folks. It starts at AnnexWealth.com. There are so many moving pieces, and it's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to get confused. If you want to just live life and you want to put things in the hands of seasoned professionals, partner with Annex. Click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. See you next Saturday at 10 o'clock. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ.